Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Hero. Not to be confused with the 2015 Hindi film, Hero. Not to be confused with the 1983 Hindi film, Hero. Not to be confused with the 1997 Hong Kong martial arts film, Hero. Not to be confused with the song by Enrico Iglesias, Hero. Not to be confused with any other accidental last action, big six or sandwich. No, this is the 2002 and also 2004 movie starring Jet Li and directed by Zhang Yimou. This episode was commissioned by Pascal Dooley using the Patreon. He uh, did the uh, $50 a month thing for three months, which is a way of doing it. And we've still got many months until we have to go on vacation in August. So if you guys want to get your commissions in, start now. Sidebar, we have got a load, like a load of you guys came out of the woodwork. We're like, yep, now that you mention it, there's a whole bunch of shows we want. So we got Scott Pilgrim vs. The World coming up, Transmetropolitan, The Grand Budapest Hotel, Swiss Army Man, Stranger Things, The Second Coming, LA Confidential, How to Raise a Geek Child, and The Expanse. And I was saying to Sharon the other day, this is kind of um, school of movies at its most scholarly. Uh, as in, as opposed to sort of bringing stuff in for you guys that we've prepared at home, we are being handed a curriculum here. And it's like, right, you got to make this sing for the kids. And we're like, right, okay, so let's really delve into it. So, uh, you know, th these uh, commission shows, interestingly enough, are actually us, you know, trying to be teachers. Best way of putting it. And we have seen Hero half a dozen times over the past 13 years, but honestly, I think we got the most out of it this time, taking notes and looking hard for layers of symbolism. Did you get much? Yeah, I did, you got yeah. quite... I, I've always got a lot out of the, uh, the visuals of this mm, film. Mm. This was possibly the first time that I engaged on a deeper level with the narrative. Yeah, yeah. We'll start off by talking about the distribution, because that's always fun. Uh, this is uh, one of the highest grossing films ever made in China. I don't know if The Great Wall beat it, but we'll, uh, we'll double check that now. Uh, it cost 31 million, made 177.4 million, which is a lot if you actually look at like the fact that this made a lot worldwide. Let's look at that. Let's look at The Great Wall by the same director for comparison. Cost 150 million, so five times as much. And it made 300... Matt Damon's not cheap, you know. Yeah, made 330 million. So it made, actually, twice as much. Uh, but it was also distributed... Like, you know, there was a lot of universal money in this one as well. So, uh, yeah. It was, at the time, uh, the uh, uh, highest-grossing motion picture in Chinese uh, film history. And, in fact, the fact that it cost five times as much but only made twice as much, I believe it still has that. Mm. Has that trophy. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, but either way, if, if you want to make a high-grossing Chinese film, Zhang Yimou is your man. Although, your results may vary. Two of his films I love, and two of his films I hate. <laughs> okay. But then again, I, there are uh, uh, several Quentin Tarantino films that I absolutely love, and he's one of the most influential filmmakers on me. And a couple of his films I absolutely hate. Mm. Well, you're not going to like everything that a particular director makes. I'm sure there's a Guillermo del Toro movie somewhere that we're not that keen Not on. that fond of Mimic. There you go. Don't hate it, though. Okay. Not one of his films that I hate. Okay. Um, Jan de Bont, Speed. Speed 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, Nicholas Winding Refn, Drive, Neon Demon. Yep, yeah, love Drive. Mm. Love Drive. Um, Neon Demon? Not yeah. so much. Yeah, well. <laughs> anyway. Um, so anyway, Hero. Uh, and uh, it's funny that I mentioned Tarantino because he's been on my mind. He was uh, in- instrumental in bringing this to the West. He, uh, uh, Miramax got the distribution rights around about 2002. And uh, they took ages to get it out. Ages. They delayed it like uh, six times. In- it says here, import DVDs of the film were sold online and Miramax demanded that the sites cease selling the DVD. And now that I think about it, that's how we first saw this film. I bought an import Chinese DVD of Hero because I've been hearing fantastic news about it from, like, you know, film festival circuits. Mm, but you um, couldn't get it anywhere but else. But we couldn't... Like, it wasn't going to be released on DVD to see um, anywhere because Miramax demanded the site cease selling the DVD. No one may ever see Hero. Brilliant. Good thinking there, Harv. Um, but, you yeah, know, we got a uh, Chinese um, DVD of it. Now, there is a significant moment at the end or near the end, where the translation, I noticed this, and then when I checked on uh, Wikipedia, it was like, yep, I thought that translated differently, and apparently that translation was somewhat contentious. We'll come back to that soon. But, uh, yeah, Quentin Tarantino was, you know, big on this, and I think, you know, at the time he was gearing up for doing Kill Bill himself, so he, um, you know, was was really, you know, watching Jet Li in action here and, and, and watching uh, Zhang Yumou, who, by the way, this was his first martial arts film, so it's not like he'd been doing loads of these for years and then they finally gave him a budget. Mm. He had been doing dramas, like Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely, and he, he actually says in one of the... Um documentaries very short documentaries that he'd never done action before and actually had to hire an action director Mm. to come and help him out with that side of things there are certain uh, action directors who uh, you know do their own small films but actually would be really fantastic for second unit stuff we saw recently Ninja 2 Shadow of a Tear which is like straight to DVD stuff but it's by Isaac Florentine the director fantastic action director his movies cost about, it doesn't even say the price here, but I would say they probably made that for a couple of million. You know, the, the, the action scenes are way better than high-budget Hollywood fare. Specifically fight scenes. If you compare the fight scenes from really accomplished, confident action directors to shaky cam fight scenes in disposable Liam Neeson action thrillers, doesn't even compare. But they, you know, a good practice is to get these, you know, super pros in for your action sequences because not every director who is very good at drama is going to be particularly good at uh, doing people, you know, fighting one another. 
And significantly, there were times in this where he actually just asked uh, Jet Li and Donnie Yen, um, you guys want to block a fight together? Because you're the professionals on this one. Why the hell would I be the one to uh, uh, to tell you guys how to fight? It's like um, uh, going up to Da Vinci and saying, well, I've got an idea, Da Vinci, and I'm going to show you how to paint. Um, here's a helicopter I drew on a napkin. <laughs> anyway. We begin before the film even starts with the music of Tan Dunn. I think we should try and like really hold back on talking about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon because that is an, probably going to be an upcoming show. In fact, I think Pascal's going to ask for it anyway. So uh, uh, we'll hold back on really discussing Crouching Tiger. What I will say, though, is that we love that film and that it came out in 2000. So when this film came out in 2002, and I suppose we would have got the DVD around 2003, maybe very early 2004, a few months before it hit yeah, UK screens, it's weird hearing Tan Dun basically doing a less melancholy version of much the same tune, uh, to uh, much mm. the same theme of. It um, is. It is very Tiger. similar. There's a lot of of musical stylings that I think are are very similar, but that may be to do with the fact that they are evoking a very similar world. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to call the... Uh, there's a trilogy of films, actually. Crouching Tiger, Hero, and the third one? Uh, House of Flying Daggers. Bingo. What links those three together? It's not director, it's not fight choreographer. Zhang Ji. Zhang Ziyi. The Zhang Ziyi, and we don't count that Rush Hour film she was in, <laughs> the Zhang Ziyi trilogy of epic martial arts, uh, Chinese-produced, I believe, hang on, uh, Crouching Tiger was Taiwan, wasn't it? Uh, Chinese, Taiwanese, and Hong Kong investors. Yeah, okay. So, uh, should we say Asian-produced, beautiful, epic um, Asian fantasies? Uh, and uh, they're all fantastic, and you are absolutely encouraged to seek all three of them out and then watch them back-to-back. Which order would you suggest? If you're going to go by um, actual chronological time, Hero takes place 2,000 years ago. House of Flying Daggers takes place in AD 859 in the decline of the Tang Dynasty. Mm. And um, Crouching Tiger is set in the Qing Dynasty in roughly 1778. So if you want to go watch them in historical sense, watch them in that order. Or watch them in order of release, so it's Crouching Tiger, Hero... Flying Daggers. Right. I would argue that if you're watching them, my preferred order would be the progression of character for Zhang Zhi. Nice. So in Crouching Tiger, she's the, um, you know, spoiled princess hmm. who wants to learn. And in uh, Hero, she's gone off to learn Hmm. Um, and is in the process of being trained. And in uh, and in uh, House of Flying Daggers, she has learned. She's a warrior. She's uh, fully yeah. developed her skills. Nice. So, obviously, it's not the same character in each story, but I actually think end on Flying Daggers anyway. Mm. It's a wonderful, bittersweet ending. So yeah, I'd go Crouching Tiger, Hero, Flying Daggers. That's um, you know that way. Crouching Tiger will have 
probably one of the biggest impacts if you haven't seen any of these mm-hmm. because it's amazing. Of the three, it's my favourite. Um, but uh, they're, they're all fantastic. It's probably the best in terms of story and character. Mm. Certainly mm. from a dramatic perspective, I would say that's that's mm. probably my favourite. But, so we had like fully steeped ourselves in Crouching Tiger and there are many similarities in Hero. And there are times when it feels like um, Ta- uh, Zhang Yumou has watched Crouching Tiger many times and gone, I want to do that. And he kind of does. And so, you know, it makes sense to get Tan Dunn to come in and, and say, right, you did a very uh, water-powered score for Crouching Tiger. Can you do a fire-powered score for this one? Eh? Yes, although oh, I think yeah. it does weave around fire, water, and other elements too, but I will come on to that when I start talking about colour theory. Color theory. Yeah. But Crouching Tiger uh, leans heaviest on a, a water sense of sort of the flow. Mm-hmm. The, uh, all the flutes in it. Like a brilliant. Oh, there's a lot of air in the bamboo scene as well. Oh, bollocks. They're all <laughs> elemental. Okay. So, um, yeah, you, you've got that uh, music. And, and um, for those who haven't seen this film before, let's tell you basically what, what happens in the film. A nameless prefect, basically a cop, in 2,000 years ago, ancient China, when it was divided into seven kingdoms, uh, comes to the kingdom of Quin. Kin? Kin. Kin. The, uh, the, there's no U in it, so it's, uh, uh, if you're saying it in phonetic Cantonese, it would be Kin. Um, well, it'd be, yeah, if it was, if you're talking about Qi, that's Q-I. So. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he has apparently slain three assassins, uh, which allows him not only an audience with an emperor, which allows him not only an audience with the king of Kin, but uh, to get extremely close to him for a one-on-one chat. And uh, he goes in, chats with the emperor, the emperor, in, and he goes in, chats with the king, and the king asks him, so how did you beat these guys when thousands of my guards could not do this? And Nameless tells him a tale. And he tells him one story, and then the king tells Nameless another story, and then we get another story. And then kind of another story. So basically, it's, it's almost an anthology. Mm. And it's, uh, it's effectively retelling the same story from different perspectives, but adding to it each time. <clears throat> and uh, you know, straight away, first off, you've got this amazing photography. The, uh, the cinematographer... Uh, Christopher Doyle, uh, who did In the Mood for Love, so he's very used to shooting Maggie Chung and making her look amazing. Um, but That's uh, not hard, though, yeah. let's face it. <laughs> you could do it with a, uh, one of those Kodak party cameras. Um, but you've got this amazing shot of the... Is that the Forbidden City? It certainly evokes the Forbidden City. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I happen to know that there were thousands of real-life extras. That's where the budget went on this. They, can, they, they paid for thousands of black outfits for the uh, guards to wear and just flank Jet Li on all sides as he's coming in. No one lives at this castle. It's just a guard jamboree and the king. Mm. It's ridiculous. But uh, there's these, uh, you know, incredible steps, and he, you know, there's a lot of wide-angle shots of, uh, you know, just to really just to, to take in this immense architecture. And the people, the individuals, seem small, but the culture seems vast. 
if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, it's it's very much, it feels like a mass and that actually, that theme plays into the story later on mm. and becomes quite significant. Um, but the idea that an individual gets lost in this vastness mm. is um, is quite pressing. Now, the King of Kin is uh, coming under a lot of, Flack for uh, attempting to unify all seven kingdoms and make himself emperor to turn it into a, an empire. Mm. And, and of course, by unify we mean conquer. conquer. And uh, specifically, uh, the uh, the kingdom of Zhao in particular really doesn't like him. Uh, and uh, so he's become kind of paranoid. He wears armor all the time. He uh, he has various fail safes for preventing uh, assassination. And uh, he can barely sleep because he's afraid he's going to be assassinated at any moment. And the idea of assassination and paranoia sort of threads throughout this whole film as everyone's always taking safety measures. But um, Nameless gets, you know, stripped naked and then, uh, you know, re-robed and uh, sent to go and kneel in front of him. Now, there's a lot of black for this first intro of the film. And you've been doing a lot of color theory on this. What is black to you? Well, um, it's going to be very difficult to talk about it without at least touching on the other elements. But basically, one of the things that really hits me in the face with this film, and one of the reasons that I love it, um, and it's the same thing as gets done in Pitch Black, Mm -hmm. um, which I can't remember if we've we've never done it. We still haven't done it. Oh, my God. The irony is, folks, that Pitch Black was the first film we really went to town on. Like, we'd only just met fairly recently, and we sort of went to see the film and just... We were walking out and there was all these ideas coming off it. So really, that should have been one of the first ones we did. Yeah, that's weird. Do you know why we haven't? Why? Obligation to do Chronicles of Riddick as well. Good point. We need to separate ourselves from that obligation Mm. and further obligation to do Riddick as well. Yes. I know Neil likes Chronicles of Riddick, but we really don't. It's it's all right. It's bearable. It's not bearable. It's bobbins. It's kind of bearable. No, it's not. All right. It's, it's, there's bits of it that are okay, but it is Bobbins. Space Conan, and yeah. not the good Conan. <laughs> the bad Conan. <laughs> the Jason Momoa Conan. Oh, dear. There's a Jason Momoa Conan? There's a Jason Momoa. Did you not remember it? I didn't. Remember? Have I seen it? It's as good as the Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> well, that says it all, really, doesn't it? Um, yeah, so anyway, Pitch Black um, has something that it does with colours of light, and it divides the film into segments. Um, and in the costumes and the backgrounds, uh, Zhang Yimou does something very similar with Hero, um, and each part of the story is told with a different overarching colour. And as you say, this first bit where uh, Nameless is coming into the palace, is everything's outlined in black. Um, oh, side note, by the way, uh, I saw Fast and Furious 8 today, and I, ch- I checked on the... While we're talking Vin Diesel. Yeah, I checked on the screen, uh, it's, it, was, it had a little rundown on who Dominic Toretto was, and it said 40. That means that in The Fast and the Furious, he was 23 years old. Really? Really, Vin? He hasn't changed much, really, has he? Somewhere in Vin Diesel's attic, there's a painting slowly deteriorating. He, it's just as though he had swelled. Mm. Um, he is 49. Come on, Vin Diesel! 32. Yes, Dominic Toretto was 32 in that film. Mm. But, uh, but not 23. Well, Come he had on. to be substantially older than somebody who'd already qualified as an FBI agent. There's so. a little bit of chicanery uh, uh, with uh, like changing the, the like when these films happened. Mm. Because um, 
Because Furious 3... I was going to say, while we're criticising Vin Diesel for losing himself 10 years, let's talk about Lucas Black, shall we? Shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's not, because we did already, but um, yeah. Okay, we were talking about colour theory, we We went to Vin Diesel. Okay, right, so the the Black of the Empress Palace. Now, at at this point, the main thing um, that I would say is the importance of the black is that uh, it's the absence of colour. Mm-hmm. Um, There is very specifically an offsetting in this between um, white, which is the combination of all Mm colours, and kind of represents the closest you get to reality Mm -hmm. in this. The the version of events that you get that is the truest and has the most different uh, people's perspectives on what's going on. It's the least coloured by perspective. Exactly, that's right, Um, is is the section that's all in white. Um, So the, the section that's all in black... I kind of took to be symbolic of the idea that here the king's viewpoint rules. It's the the opposite of, of the white, which is kind of everybody's version of events, mm. to black being just the king's. Also, if you want to look at it that, that way, so did you say that uh, um, white being the combination of all colours mm. and black is the absence of colour? Yeah. Hmm. There's only one other colour that's prevalent in uh, the uh, the king's court, and that's red. There's mm. a lot of red yeah. um, f- uh, the tufts. The army of, have uh, yeah. red plumes on their plumes. helmets. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, <clears throat> and there's some red pennants on the... I was going to make a profound point about the, uh, the fact that the king wants to unify everything and, and thus... Uh, do away with the complications of these various colours. Mm, yeah. And black is uh, a, a way of, of just putting a blanket on everything. Yeah, because at this point, that's the thing. He's not... Although he is looking at, at his mission um, in terms of unifying, it is very much everything will be unified under me mm. and I will be the supreme. Um And that's the... Ostensibly, this is the reason why Nameless has come to... Uh, uh, to do what he's come to do. We haven't said it yet, have we? No, no, no. (laughs) Nameless is hiding a secret agenda. He is, yes. So we'll begin with the first story which Nameless begins to tell. And uh, that is his meeting with the first of the three assassins, Sky. Now, uh, this was originally going to be a different actor. We don't know who. Mm. Uh, But uh, he got... uh, Do you think uh, Stuart Townsend again? (laughs) <laughs> she's grinning kind of it's a turtle face <laughs> <laughs> ostrich face turtle face good lord you do all of them I do um, and you're the only person who gets to witness it <laughs> show me your turtle face <laughs> oh yeah that's full Roger Moore um, no uh, originally it was going to be a different actor and uh, Jet Li went nah man let's have uh, Donnie Yen he's really good at fighting people really liked it when we fought in Once Upon a Time in China and we've both learned a whole ton of moves since then and we're both you know masters of wushu Uh, let's see if we can get a good fight together and they do first off Donnie Yen just gets a bit of a warm up stretch fighting seven guys Mm. (laughs) with his spear Uh, and um, Donnie Yen is amazing Really, I think I, he, I think I only prefer Jackie Chan because he's so much fun. I mean, Jackie Chan's done a bunch of bad films, so has Donnie Yen. Uh, I think, but Donnie Yen's kind of—it's almost scary how gorgeous he still looks mm-hmm. in Triple X Two. He looks like if you said Donnie Yen forty, I'd go nah, he's thirty. 
It's like Donnie Yen is 60. Is he? No, he's, he's bloody old. He's, he's a lot older than he looks. 53. Still, like I say, triple X2, because I catch all the Vin Diesels. Uh, <laughs> Donnie Yen looks amazing and uh, moves with such speed that it's like, slow down, slow down, I can't, I just like, which guy did you just hit there? Because everyone's on the floor That's now. why he looks so young. Time cannot catch him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Death comes near him. He's just going to go, whoop. I was too quick for it. <laughs> 2016 went after Donnie Yen and then went home nursing its bruised testicles. Don't even joke. Do not even joke. No, I couldn't. Anyway, so uh, Donnie, I, I, it is regrettable that Donnie Yen is not in this more because basically after this scene, it is a, a fairly small role. It's very it's much a kind of let's all thank Donnie for showing up. Mm, yeah. Because um, uh, like I say, he, he uh, he's using his spear, and there's this great moment when they say reveal your weapon, and because these guys have come here to arrest him, they're prefects like nameless. Um, and, but that whole reveal your weapon thing, it harkens back to the Crouching Tiger thing of like people were known, warriors were known for their technique or for their weapon uh, in this sort of like in Chinese fantasy. So it's like I'm iron arm because I have a really strong arm. Mm. I'm great crane leg because I can hop really high. Mm. I'm, you know, King Kong palm because I could poison you with my King Kong palm. Also see Iron Monkey if you really want to see Donnie Yen being amazing and also really funny. Mm, yes, indeed. But I think if you if you bear in mind that this kind of story um, in this culture is very similar to the Western superhero story. Yes. So that fits with the idea that we know he's Captain America because he's carrying a the big shield. round yeah. shield. And we know he's Iron Man because he's wearing the suit. And we know... I am Vibranium Shield. Yes. I am Titanium Armor. Indeed. But the point being, as has now started to become a thing... I am Purple comics, Trousers. Um, the, uh, the trappings of that hero am, meow, meow. can be passed on. So the shield of Captain America can be passed to somebody who is not Steve Rogers. I am Walkman. But they then become Captain America. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the Iron I am Groot. suit can be passed on to somebody else. And the... Uh, the Spider-Man webhead costume can be passed on to somebody else. So um, that sort of the idea that this is a, a symbol that represents that that character rather than being yeah. the, the person in and of themselves yeah. is, is very consistent with that. But there's also the idea of uh, um, teachings, as in they learned that from a master who only mm. teaches it to a certain student and that they could feasibly teach it to, you know, the idea of passing down that knowledge. And... The idea of kung fu and the various other arts being sort of, you know, like a, a series of like secret techniques that you have to be extremely dedicated to learn, mm. and the uh, uh, greedy trying to get hold of new techniques and get, learn it the fast way, always being sort of looked down on. Mm, absolutely, and the, the I think they, they mention it in Crouching Tiger where somebody basically steals knowledge, and that's not considered to be acceptable. Um, but the if you think about it, that's kind of in direct opposition. This idea of individualism of, of you being the one person who can, who can use this weapon or the one person who can um, do this technique, mm. that is directly opposed to the Kin Army, yeah. which is thousands and thousands of people who are all dressed the same and know exactly the same techniques yeah. and are all kind of lost in this anonymous mass. And 
it's again you you're looking at somewhat something where the balance is found somewhere between two extremes luckily nearly 2000 years later in uh, Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon you still get people named Southern Duck so you know the the Southern Duck technique gets carried on and that that aspect did maintain it would appear at least in the fiction mm. um i don't know how like any anybody really into Chinese history wanted to sort of tell us if there really were these Chinese superheroes. Obviously, they couldn't fly, but the idea of these like wandering warriors, sort of uh, you know, going about the but place. But again, superheroes get retold. Myths, Greek myths, get retold. Yet different stories that are, are played out by the same set of characters or the same story that gets played out by a different set of characters with a a slightly different interpretation. So if Nameless actually has a name, it's probably Bendy Sword because he um, turns up and uh, challenges Sky to a duel and they have uh, this amazing spear versus sword uh, match. Part of it is uh, fought entirely in their minds. They just stand and sort of concentrate and and they're basically sort of feeling each other out. Uh, There's a little game of uh, what looks like an ancient form of chess with uh, mm. uh, being played in this uh, you know sort of wonderful old temple um, while they're doing it it's a chess house that's what yeah. they're there to do and that that kind of that whole setup the environment there is representative of the fact that this section is all about strategy yeah. it's all about um, playing out these battles without actually having to strike yeah. the actual editing on the fight is a little bit annoying. There are times when they're engaged in this incredible battle and it sort of cuts away to things that are actually not particularly important or interesting at all, like an old man putting away his, his uh, zither or, um, you know, just some rain dripping on a thing. Just to sort of show the... Oh, you like that? I loved that! I found it annoying because it suggests, oh, yeah, some people over there fighting, pay it no mind. Um... No? Well, okay. Well, to me, and I completely understand what you mean there, that there's this incredible fight going on between these two incredible people and Jet Li went out of his way to make sure that the other person in that fight was Donnie Yen. Mm -hmm. Let's get some focus here and see Jet Li fighting Donnie Yen. We all know that's why we're here. However... From a, uh, a symbolic perspective, like I said, they're fighting in this chess house. You've got the rain falling down all around them. Um, the, uh, the musician goes to leave, but then um, Nameless asks him to stay. And he basically then plays the soundtrack for the fight. Mm-hmm. It becomes um, diegetic music. It does. And the, the whole thing for me was kind of about all this being part of one thing. It's, it's all about blend, it's all about flow. Music is like maths, it's like strategy, it's like fighting. It's like it's all part of the same um, universe and world and, and way of thinking. Um, and it, it just, it, for me, it fits. The fact that they don't, uh, that uh, it does cut away and it's kind of like you can hear ching, 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 ching as their uh, weapons are clashing, it does kind of underline the fact that A, this is a story, B, they don't know each other and thus there's no great hatred between them which would like be this big dramatic you killed my father no type situation but you are you going to argue that the actual song that starts playing here is also really good and that it really doesn't horribly distract from the scene Folks, if you've seen the film, you'll know exactly the one I'm talking about. It's an acquired taste, but when you've seen it a couple of times, if it's going to grate, it's going to grate hard. It's the one that sounds like this. No! 
Intolerable. It's it's undignified. It's grating and screeching, and um, it, it's it's very difficult to be sat in the same room as for me. It's it, like it is, it's like a cat with its tail caught in the spin dryer. It is. It's extremely discordant, and I don't think that's an accident. It's uh, it, it makes the whole scene feel jarring and wrong and cheap. Um, okay, fair enough. Because um, all of this incredible dignity that these two characters and two actors have is drained away. Okay. Well, it's a shame it had that impact for you. But I think I think the... Well, it has that continuous impact for me every yeah. single time I see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's fair enough. That's not the only time it plays in the film. Mm. Is it? Oh, when does it turn up later? It plays at the river scene. The lake. This beautiful mm. still lake. And you're like, oh, this is beautiful. Oh, this lovely music. And then it cuts in again. It's like, I'm not going to make the sound. She's got her fingers in her ears. But it's that, and it's awful. And it's like, at this point, it's like, yeah, just just finish the scene, okay? You're bouncing around on the water. I get it, enough. And you should never feel that about a scene like that. No. It just looks like awful showing off and horrible mismatched aesthetics versus uh, score. These sound like noises Nick Cage decides to make in a fit of fancy while overacting in a role. In fact, if you uh, listen to the bit in Face Off, where Castor Troy wakes up and finds that his face is off, he makes pretty much the same noises. It's horrible. Okay. That's that's the biggest standout weakness of this film for me. That sometimes uh, sometimes it feels like uh, Zhang Yumo is just showing off, and obviously that scene when they when they play it for too long, throwing the uh, music in there, just underlines that. Mm. Okay. And we know, by the way, that he is not uh, look, having watched Curse of the Golden Flower, which, by the way, folks, for our historians. 
Uh, that was one of the first movies we ever covered on Digital Cowboys number one, way back in early 2007. The, the whole film is about uh, the overthrowing of an emperor who's clearly a wanker. Uh, and at uh, the very end, he doesn't get overthrown. There, there's a massive battle to no avail. Uh, the, 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 other, the son who's trying to actually defy him kills himself. The heart that was in the, the middle of House of Flying Daggers and the, the, the soul and the um, self-sacrifice of Hero, vacuum, gone, completely, nothing. All you get left is veneer and gold paint and is a waste of everybody's time and money. And Zhang Yumo should be thoroughly ashamed of himself. Now I've said my piece. Paul, what did, did you... Th- they didn't like it then. There, there was a moment when, um, after a lot of talking, a bunch of ninjas turned up. And I went, yes. And Paul also went, ah, oh, last. And I suddenly realised that Paul was just as bored as I was. I thought, yeah. oh, great. I thought it was just me. I thought it was just stupid, and I couldn't appreciate another, oh, per- no, another it, culture. No, it was... It looks like a mess. No, it looks like community theatre with a budget of millions. <laughs> it's sort of, they've, they've got the grandeur, they haven't got the character. There's nothing there to actually look at. There's no people. It, Ultimately, there were characters you were supposed to care about that when they died horribly, messily, tragically, I almost cheered. Just because it was something happening. It was like, the only things they could stop annoying me right now. Well, there was go- go- I think the only thing that really raised her, piqued her interest at all was Gong Li's cleavage. <laughs> Which kept popping out. It was, you know, she kept I'm rushing through the castle with these things bobbing up and down. And we, did, thinking, we did both. Tecmo did, make this film. We, we, we <laughs> did, both did, did a cheeky glance and went, oh, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that, no. Uh... Over ten years ago now. Mm, I believe that film was actually the founding of the inverse rule of ninja. It certainly wasn't the first time this had been cited by other people, but for us, it was the one where we basically suggested one ninja, deadly. Two ninjas, really tough. Fifteen ninjas, they're just goons. Mm. Fifty ninjas, not a chance. Just, uh, they, they may as well be uh, rednecks in a bar. Absolutely. Hero's going to carve through them like a hot knife through butter. Oh, yeah. Hero's going to be taking names. Or not bothering to take names. They're yeah. just nameless. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> So then, uh, as it turns out, Nameless, in his version of the story, uh, killed Sky uh, in this duel. It ultimately culminates in Sky being uh, uh, dealt a killer blow and falling to the ground with the head of his spear being removed, which was his uh, significant weapon. Nameless was doing that to get to the other two assassins. And there's this whole, like twisted relationship suddenly laid down in front of us we're introduced to these two like straight away back to back and it's like there's this one called broken sword uh, played by tony lung uh and uh he's very very quiet and uh, likes calligraphy and uh, there's this one called flying snow played by maggie chung and she is also very very quiet and embittered and from the sounds of it she had an affair with Guy, Donnie Yen's character. I'm not sure I would characterise it as an affair. They slept together once, I believe. They had a shag. They did. Apparently. And And uh, Broken Sword got rather really pissed. Oh, he was so furious. He sulked for months. Years, three years, didn't talk to her. Sulked for three years, didn't talk to her. Vow Mm -hmm. of silence. Yep. Right. Despite the fact that they somehow end up at the same calligraphy school. They're... 
I can't, I'm not going to say exactly how many years it was, but there was like a, a, there's a Japanese man, I believe, who hasn't spoken to his wife for 40 years uh, because uh, of uh, uh, an argument they had over a dinner one time. Mm -hmm. They're still married. He just never speaks to her. It's a bit difficult to divorce somebody you won't speak to. Yeah. That's, that's a life wasted, isn't it? I mean, by, uh, there's no other way of looking at it. You spend 40 years married to someone that you're in a tiff with and won't resolve. Fact check here, it was 20 years. Otao Katayama and his wife Yumi, who live in Nara, Japan, with their three children. They haven't spoken for 20 years. And their 18-year-old son, Yoshiki, sought help from a TV program which sent the married couple on a date. And they actually started talking in the park. And it turns out the thing he was so super pissed at her about for two decades was that she was showing quite a lot of attention to the children. That does definitely happen. But, this is a fairly stark reminder of why communication is absolutely key. Your life can just disappear without it. So they're uh, practicing their calligraphy at a, what is this, like a calligraphy house? It's a school. school? Calligraphy school. Yeah. Calligraphy school. And this is where the uh, colour suddenly comes in, because the, uh, the the fight in the uh, temple is very, it's almost monochrome. It's very sort of shades of, uh, uh, like, you know, charcoal, and uh, Sky's outfit is sort of a mustard yellow. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly the whole place is swathed in red at this calligraphy school. And, uh, you know, everyone's sort of practicing writing and there's, uh, they're writing in red sand and there's red paint everywhere and everyone's wearing red and it's just, it's as red as it can get. And uh, there's this lover's tiff going on. And Broken Sword's um, PA, hairbrusher, assistant, protege. Pet student. Student, pet student, Moon, played by Zhang Ziyi uh, from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and House of Flying Daggers is kind of the go-between. Having to pass messages back and forth. Will you tell Flying Snow to pass the syrup? I'm not an owl! She is an owl at this <laughs> she point. She is basically an owl at this point. And Tony um, Lung decides, sorry, Broken Sword decides that the best way to get back at Maggie Chung after all these years of sulking is to shag Moon. Oh, that's later. No? Other stuff happens first. Oh, yeah? What happens? Yeah. Um... Right. Oh, hang uh, on. Nameless yep. turns up. Yeah, sorry. Nameless turns and kind up of and basically, goes. Oh, yeah, because he yeah he sets them both off by yeah, going look, check it out. They've sustained this existence for three years, where they're in the same calligraphy school, but apparently haven't had to have much in the way of direct interaction. There's a balance. There's a very sort of cold war between mm. them. It's not just that though. There's there. Uh, she's super pissed at Snow. Is super pissed at him for. Another reason that we'll talk about later on for something she considers to be practically unforgivable. Yeah, but that's kind of this version of events. That's not. Indeed, that doesn't come into it. Yeah. Uh, so ultimately, what we're seeing and what we're talking about right here, um, either didn't happen at all, or probably didn't happen like this, mm. uh, because it is entirely covered by the way that Nameless puts it when he is entreating to the King of Kin, 
this is what your enemies are like. Yeah, and he basically, the way I see this whole thing being in red, obviously red is fire, mm -hmm. um, it's passion, mm -hmm. it uh, encompasses jealousy and sex and um, enthusiasm and all sorts of things that all come into this particular part of the story. I've got passion, anger, jealousy, regret, so mm -hmm. we're pretty much on point yeah. with that. Um, so the uh, army of kin turn up and fire thousands of arrows at this calligraphy school because all of these kids learning to write need to be shot. Mm. Um, and I think this was probably the first instance in a movie of loads and loads of arrows being fired all at once in that same like blanket like super stylized way there's definitely like in lord of the rings there's big volleys of arrows mm. but it's not the same following loads of arrows all in one go i'm thinking 300 here because obviously they they made a big deal out of that mm. now obviously frank miller wrote 300 years before the film came out but it, it, you know, after that, like the night arrows were not fired in volleys in exactly the but same. But I think way. it's it's used in the same uh, in a similar sense in all of those examples because this massive volley of arrows that flies towards mm. our heroes is basically meant to represent you don't stand a chance against this. It's this comedically. Is of sharp Huge. points, and it's meant to represent the fact that basically the army on the other side of this blood of sharp points is too massive for you to even comprehend and, and certainly much less deal with. Our arrows will blot out the sun. Yeah. Then we will fight in the shade. Exactly, yeah. The the story, if you like, is in how... By the way, Hero romps all over 300. 300 has so many mental problems. It totally does. We may never get to 300, but my God... Okay, carry on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how the, the heroes meet that volley of arrows is kind of what the story is about. And the the way they meet it in this particular segment of the story um, is, well, first off, um, Flying Snow uh, goes outside to... Deal with the take arrows. ...take them on herself. Um, and it, it kind of, it, it is characteristic of her. Yeah. As in, like, you know, if, if no one else is going to do it, I'll do it and I'll do it right. Yeah, yeah. She's she's very, um, what's the best way to define her? And this is kind of consistent throughout the whole movie. Um, she's a very single-minded person. Mm -hmm. She gets an idea in her head and she will follow through on it no matter what. And, mm -hmm. and to a point, it's that's her fatal flaw, is that new information she will sometimes disregard. She doesn't question. Yeah. Not enough. Mm. She takes things almost at face value a lot of the time. Uh, so yeah, she's outside flailing her uh, lovely sleeves around, like you know, like arrows scattering everywhere like matchwood. And you know, if you want to look at it in in purely um, uh, you know bird's eye view terms, you know, she's fending off this small funnel of arrows that are going everywhere but of course there are still tons of arrows flying through and so Nameless goes out and helps her and they're chopping they're like leaping up and arrows are charging up to meet them just so that they yeah. can take well, them they, on they it's... have these co these robes with sort of these gorgeous long flowing sleeves and mm. and um uh, and trains and yeah. as they, they leap and fly and twist and spin through the sky but they're this kind is, of catching the arrows in their sleeves this is an epic fable that's being told by Nameless you know, where you can describe yeah. oh and he jumped up on the roof and he caught every arrow it's like Beowulf mm -hmm. you know it's it's, it's so garnished with exaggeration that mm -hmm. it, it becomes ridiculous 
but in a kind of cool way. Yeah, there are two other responses going on to this fight at this point, by the way. Um, the master of the calligraphy school, um, basically the, the students have started to evacuate when the arrows started flying in and their, uh, their master kind of shames them all and says effectively that the, their purpose is to create words and that words will last even after they're all dead, even after they're kingdom which is um, Zhao is dead uh, and even potentially beyond uh, what the king of kin is trying to achieve so he goes into the classroom and basically sits there doing calligraphy while these arrows kind of fly into the room and, and sh stick in the wall all around him kind of outlining him in arrows mm. um, so the students then kind of follow him and they're sort of like oh well if he's going to do it I suppose we'd better do it as well a couple of them do get meanwhile, hit meanwhile they're, they're dying they're, they're getting shot in the back there's one poor guy he's got an arrow sticking out of his shoulder blade trying to write while all this is happening mm. um, meantime uh, Broken Sword uh, is not out battling. He's trying army. to write the word sword. Yeah, the Nameless's uh, kind of fake reason for being here is that he wants a scroll made that says the character for sword, but done in a new variation. Basically, there's 19 ways of writing this character. He wants a Broken Sword to make him a 20th. And the King of Kin steps in and goes, 20 ways of saying sword. I'll make it one way and one way only. Just like, do away with all this chaos. We just want order and like straightforward. Well, yeah, his, his argument is basically if there's... You're overcomplicating things. There's, there's so much other time. Yeah, if there's 20 ways of saying just one single word, mm. how in the world can people possibly understand each other? What we need is to standardise everything so that everyone can understand each other clearly. A unified language. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is when um, uh, Nameless has thrown down the uh, spearhead. Snow checks it against the little piece of the spearhead that she had been given by Sky, uh, clearly in confidence, to, to verify it's definitely his, which gives you a little window into uh, their closeness, or at least the closeness that Nameless suggests that they had. Um, yeah, because this is where he stirs the pot, basically. After all this has happened, um, he meets them in the library, the mm. two of them, and basically says, right, uh, uh, now, how does this go? He says, he I says want to fight one of you. No, well, what he, he basically tries to start a fight with, with Snow, mm. because what he says is that he, he killed Skye, and Skye said that the only thing that meant anything in his life was the one night that he got to spend with Falling Snow. Q Broken Sword getting this look of what the F on his face. Um, and Understandably, by the way. Well, indeed. Um, and that uh, Skye had told him that um, he was sure that Flying Snow would avenge his death. So he basically throws down the gauntlet and says, you know, there you go. I killed your lover. Come fight me. I wouldn't be that intimidated by him actually thinking about it. Like, if Donnie Yen was interested in you and you were interested in Donnie Yen, I'd probably just go... I was going to say, can he be on the list? Have 50 pounds take her to Wagamama's. Mm. <laughs> Frankly, thinking hard. There's, I, I could make an entire list out of the cast of this movie. Yeah. To be honest. Wow. Even the uh, even the king would turn a few heads. Mm, um, There's some good-looking people in this movie. Yeah. The 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 king, by the way, is uh, Chen Daomang, and and uh, he has a fantastic presence as a king. You never doubt the fact mm. 
that he's, uh, extremely he's in charge. Yeah. And uh, he's even more striking when he's got his hair down in the uh, the flashback uh, nearer to the end. Um, but yeah, he's he's able to basically be a uh, um, a threat and at the same time a human being in all of this, which uh, proves to be very important mm. in the long run. Um, Broken Sword decides that the most prudent way to uh, to deal with snow that now that uh, you know this pot has been stirred by uh, Nameless is by shagging Moon. Yeah, that's where this. Happens. That's when he he grabs hold of her and she doesn't object at all. Mm. Clearly has the hots for him yeah it, it, it kind of the the tone of the scene shifts slightly because everything suddenly becomes swathed in this very vivid pink blanket mm. and she's giggling and it's obviously obvious that she's really happy and she's it seems like this is something she's wanted to happen for a long time yeah. um, but then it becomes apparent that he's basically it's revenge it's, fucking yeah which and it's not nice and then everything goes kind of red again and um, she gets quite upset yeah um, now Snow's quite frightening, like with the whole black hair over one eye and the sort of wandering around with a pale face. She's verging on J horror at mm. this point. I was going to say you, you kind of expect her to have crawled out of a TV somewhere. There are other J horrors, better J horrors. I concur. But, but they all seem to have that same kind of you know dark haired, you know head lowered, creeping about thing that. Um, Snow has here, and she kills him through the wall, stabs him good for his indiscretion uh, and for purposefully trying to break her heart. And um, then uh, Moon meets uh, Snow to duel her in revenge. And so you've got this you know, youth and energy going up against um, experience and age and wisdom. And uh, it's, it's an absolutely dazzling fight uh, amongst leaves, which start off uh, autumnal yellow and then turn red by the end when blood is finally shed. And Moon just keeps rushing and running and charging and going, yeah! with her sort of um, sl- slashy blades to just, like, just to try and land a hit. But Snow's just, Snow is basically Darth Vader in Empire at this point. She's just like, playing around with her with one hand, just not like, not really trying to kill her, but eventually Moon will not stop. And so she obliges. Mm. And then uh, the uh, leaves turn to red, and it's absolutely like this is one of those scenes where if you want to get your mums into kung fu films, show them this. You know, mm. okay. So show them the sex scene first if they can, if they're that, if they're up for that kind of thing, just so they understand where the uh, affiliations lie. But um, where the source of the tension is? Yeah, where the source of the tension is. They can understand that. Yeah. Everyone can. But um, yeah, it's it's a, it's an amazing scene, and and sadly Moon dies, and then Snow is super emotional when she fights Nameless, and uh, you know he reports the fact that while they were surrounded by guards who can all verify this, uh, she was easily beaten, and he uh, got a good stab in on her, and thus claimed uh, her sword as well as Sky's spearhead, and then the broken sword of broken sword. You don't actually see him receive it in this version. Yeah. But he has them both, obviously, when he gets there. A um, couple of things about the what's going on with colour in this section. Um, there are two standout colours um, that aren't involved in all the red, um, although they are kind of a little bit. Um, when Snow goes back to her room, everything's red. The cup mm-hmm. on her table is white and it has blue inside 
Now, blue is the colour of the next segment, which we'll talk about then, but it's basically representing calm and serenity. And when she goes into the fight with Moon, she's actually really calm. That's what enables her to defeat Moon. Yeah, because Moon is furious. Exactly. She has lost all of that by the time she gets into the fight with Nameless. Mm. Um, And that's the thing that makes the king's ears prick up a little bit and think that's not quite right. Mm. Now, Did you notice that the colour of the robe she's wearing when she fights Nameless in this version of things? It's sort of a faded orangey red. It's not full red, it's she's tired. Yes, absolutely. And, angry. and also um, Moon's robes, as the, she starts off in red the same as everything else, mm-hmm. as the fight continues um, her clothes start to look slightly overwashed and more pink. Mm-hmm. That's really, that's Moon's colour in this segment is pink. Um, and uh, red is snows the orange of the leaves which do before they all flood with red at the end they get yellower and yellower and yellower yellow like the orangey yellow that keeps flashing up in here it's an accent colour there's no section that is entirely done in yellow but basically each segment has something yellow in it in the, in the first bit it's Sky's robe in this it's the leaves and then in the last segment, it's the flag that the yeah. servant brings back. When you see yellow, it means something is not as it seems. Yeah. This is a version of events that is not as it was. After having delivered this version of the story to the king, the candles that are lined up in front of them blow towards the king for a moment and then ebb back to uh, standing straight upright. And uh, that's uh, you know noticed by the king, and he uh, points out that um, from what he knows of these assassins, what he's just been told doesn't scan. And he tells a version of events that he believes actually happened. And in this version, uh, Nameless meets with the uh, two assassins. It's never Sky again, um, but uh, it's in a room full of scrolls, and everyone is swathed in blue. Now, I took that to be cold and calculating. You took that to be serenity. Yes, although there's, a, there's again, they're two sides of the same thing. Basically, this is if the red segment is fire and the passion and emotions that are, are you know, playing hard in, in what's going on, mm-hmm. this is the uh, water can basically be calm and serene or cold and chilling. Mm. Um and there's there's a bit more variety here as well in the the colours that people wear. Um, Snow's robes are a very rich turquoise, yeah. kind of a bright blue. Um, the backgrounds are um, it's, I'm not entirely certain how to describe it. Kind of more of an azure type blue, like a really blue sky, mm. um, or a you know a blue pool or something like that. But you do get little variations in this one will be pale and this one will be darker and richer. Um, but I think that the the water is also um, representative of how things are starting to flow. There's a lot of conflict in the red section. In the blue section, things go more according to what the king thinks is the plan. Mm. That this is basically a, a way that they've they've come up with this idea and everything slots into place a little bit too neatly. Mm. 
if that makes sense. Because obviously this is in his head. This is how he's worked out things happened. Mm -hmm. In real life, it's a bit more complicated than that. But he's coming up with a more smooth, flowing version where there aren't many obstacles. Everything goes exactly as it's meant to. So in this uh, version of events that the king lays down, Nameless has um, perfected a technique called, is it death at ten paces? Yes. Now, this could be something uh, in the translation because the version that we saw originally in the Chinese DVD had different wording on them. uh, Snow mentioned how swift thy sword, and um, they changed that to how fast your sword is. Mm. Uh, And it it almost changes it from a very lyrical, poetic... um, Well, that's Shakespearean. Yeah. Thy drugs are quick. Yeah. To, To something where it's like you could almost expect that in a... Um, bad um, kung fu dub Um, but this is one of the reasons to be honest why I much prefer seeing original language track with subtitles because then you can concentrate on how they're saying it and the words at the bottom basically are just meant to give you an Mm. idea of what's going back and forth also because Cantonese sounds fantastic Mm -hmm. to the point where when we watched the Crouching Tiger sequel on Netflix it's actually filmed in English but it sounded wrong yeah so we watched it they dubbed it in they dubbed it in Cantonese but it still didn't quite match up with their lips no it wasn't quite right but um, but yeah that did feel like a better way of watching it than in English yeah um there's there's just a shape to Cantonese, and I, I love the the sound of Japanese as well. Uh, no anime, uh, but uh, like having it in the original language, uh, you know, part of watching films from other cultures is to absorb it in the language of that other culture. So I, I would never, you know, I would never. Almost, Brotherhood of the Wolf is no good in English. Yeah, you got to watch it in French. Almost never go for uh, dubs rather than subs, and this is not me being snooty. It's me wanting to actually. Um, absorb that culture there are some ghibli films which have amazing uh, american voice tracks with some really fantastic actors brought in spirited away and uh princess mononoke being no anime being two particular favorites mm. also is it kirsten dunst who's kiki in yeah. delivery service kiki's she's delivery lovely service. in that as yeah. well yeah but again it's the effort and the the enthusiasm that they put into it Somebody just woodenly reading something off a script mm. to fill in a gap doesn't even come close. So the emperor theorizes that uh, this uh, nameless uh, man has perfected death at ten paces and has basically made a deal with these assassins to stage their deaths or indeed carry out their deaths so that he can g- gain an audience with the emperor and get within ten paces of him to then kill the, I keep saying emperor, the king. Everything about him suggests emperor more than king. Mm. I don't know. That's clearly what he wants. Yeah. This is laid down. Uh, Broken Sword says no, and then Snow stabs him just to disable him so that she can then um, stage the fight with Nameless in front of witnesses. Mm. Yeah, well, they, they spend the night together before they head out. The idea initially is that one of them is going to go forward and be the one that's sacrificed. They're still trying to decide which, and they've basically said we should die together. Um, but then Snow decides that she wants Sword to carry on without her. Yeah, and when they sleep, it's in this anti-assassination bed, surrounded by beaded curtains that have 
you know, uh, uh, heavy and, and woven and have little bells on them. So basically, no one can shoot at them, no one can run at them, no one can creep towards them without making a tremendous racket. No one, it's, it's the safest place in the world for them, basically. Mm. Actually, yeah, no, I've, I've got my bits mixed up. She doesn't stab um, Broken Sword at this point, that's later on. She stabs him several times. She stabs him in this version as well, but basically, oh, she, it's it's meant to could be. You stop stabbing, stop broken stabbing, sword. poor sword. Um, basically, it's it. She wounds him, but it's not mortal. The idea, she she actually says she thinks she might have stabbed him a little bit too deeply, but she mm. knows that Moon will come after him and take care of him, um, and she wants him to uh, to live. She's basically just putting him out of the fight. Yeah. At this point. So this is a uh, much warmer pair than we saw in the version of events told by Nameless. They're not super pissed at each other they care about each other and this is what the emperor this is what the king of kin um estimates these two assassins to be more like um interesting that he would like he would specifically outline the anti-assassination bed and he's like right and they're gonna be sleeping and they're gonna have to be in a bed which is like anti-assassination and i've seen these and i want to get one for myself mm. it's just occurred to me actually this is the king writing fanfic Shipping. about the two assassins who've tried to kill him in the past yeah <laughs> he's creepy but mm. okay it's it's nice that he's a fan um but twisted um so snow makes a uh, a show of fighting nameless in front of the uh, guards She's very calm in this one. Yeah, she's very calm, but uh, she allows herself to be stabbed rather than being super uh, angry uh, and, and upset and um, tired. And she sort of allows herself to be stabbed. And uh, Broken Sword is filled with, uh, um, not fury, but just... Sadness. Sadness. And uh, he Grief. decides to fight Nameless on a lake. And we mentioned this earlier, it's an absolutely beautiful scene. Uh, that um, you know will really stick in the memory. It's it's wonderfully shot on the lake. There's a lot of leaping around, loads of wire work here. Uh, Tony Lung apparently um, twisted his ankle, like you know, he tore a ligament, tore a ligament in his, his ankle. ankle. So he's broken ankle. He went to the doctor. The doctor said you can't go back. Can't put to, any weight on it. You can't do any action. You can't even walk on it for three weeks. He was back on set the next day. Yeah, he's a trooper. More than Vigo Mortens. And Although, worth noting, he did also say that by the end of the shoot, it still hadn't healed properly. Yeah. You, you, you can basically do yourself some severe lasting damage if you if you ignore your doctor. Yes. Folks, if your doctor says you've got a torn ligament, go and put your feet up. Yeah. Do it. Luckily, most of the actual scene around this was just sort of being spun around in the air. I actually pointed out that the imagery ends up as masturbatory because it just goes on and on and it's beautiful. It's like they, they keep leaping around and dipping their swords in the lake and just like they're, they're, they're flying through the air. And obviously this is garnished very heavily by the king himself. Mm. Um, but it, does, it does drag on a little bit. It does. And there's a bit where um, uh, Broken Sword suddenly rushes over to uh, Snow's body, which is on this uh, small island. Uh, and you know he just wants to be with her, and he's sort of like he's he's crying, and there's sort of water droplets everywhere, and um, nameless goes sort of charging towards him, but ends up being fl like flailing around in midair as as though being grabbed and shaken about by an invisible dog, and it looked like their wire um, rig had had gone crazy and was spinning gently in a way he shouldn't be, uh, but uh, I think it's it's all part of the story that the king is sp uh, spinning here. And at the very end, uh, Broken Sword sends his sword to go with Snows so that the swords will never be apart. Uh, and thus, that's the reason that the king uh, estimates 
Nameless is able to show up with the spearhead and the two swords uh, and uh, allegedly having killed Snow and Sky. I do have a symbolic take on the overly elaborate lake dancing if you want to know what it is. Of course I do. It, it's possibly a bit self-indulgent, but again, this is just an interpretation of what this could represent. Okay. Uh, basically, the whole segment here is about, uh, as we said, grief and sadness and um, obviously Sword is mourning the death of Snow who's been laid in state on this uh, lake. And when he goes over to her, uh, her body... Basically, they've been dancing around on the lake, but not touching the lake. Um, And the point here is that they're trying to stay out of the emotional pull of the undertow. Um, A droplet of water lands on Snow's face and Sword goes over to kind of protect her from being touched by anything. And when... Nameless approaches him. His intention at this point is to uh, is to stab him, presumably in the back since he's not looking, but then he pulls it at the last minute and as he flies off, kind of ends up on the surface of the lake, splashing around like an idiot um, with getting water all over his hands and he's kind of getting contaminated almost by the force and the strength of their emotion. <laughs> So the candles flickering towards the Emperor, the candle flames, uh, as it turns out, they're magic candles, and they can sense uh, malicious uh, thoughts from uh, the person sitting in front of them. So basically, every time they flicker towards the, uh, the king, uh, he's, it's nameless going, Oh, I'm going to kill you so bad! But uh, so, so the king then decides... Okay, so we're at a bit of an impasse here because my guards are a hundred paces away and they will definitely kill you. Uh, But uh, you are ten paces from me so you can pretty much definitely kill me. So the king asks him for the truth and Nameless obliges and gives him the least coloured version of events. uh, That he is a man of Zhao which uh, gives him... uh, His village has been destroyed by uh, uh, this king and, and his army and he's got every reason to want to assassinate this man. And so Conan then? Yeah, well Conan and, and a million <laughs> other fantasies. He also um, elaborates on the the killing of Sky and Snow which is that he has practiced a surgical strike wherein his uh, sword goes through the body and out the other side which will injure you but not kill you. So basically he's asking them which of you guys wants to put your life on the line? You don't actually have to die for this, but uh, you, you, we're going to have to make a big show of your public death. This, I think, is the one I was thinking of where Snow, in fact, injures Broken Sword and fights him just to make sure that he's not going to be healthy enough to actually perform do this fight. Yeah. Uh, and uh, while she's fighting Broken Sword, Nameless then fights Moon. I think this might be one fight too many. Mm. Well, because no, we've she... already seen this scene once and, and a variation of this scene once. Yeah, the, the reason she fights him in this version, though, it's the, the blue one is where she stabs him to stop yeah. him being able to fight. In this one, um, they actually fall out because um, Broken Sword basically says oh, yeah. to... No, it's not, I want to do this fight. Uh, Broken Sword actually has his reasons and doesn't want the king to be assassinated. And that's why Snow, who does want him to be assassinated, starts fighting him. Now here, I think... 
Um, every time I see this, it's, it, it's around about this point where it's like, quit cramming everything up its own ass. And it's like they've <laughs> suddenly complicated this thing to the point where the average person watching is going to be, hang on, what is... Like, is this real? What is... Now, I, I completely understand what's gone on in the film by reading and rereading and doing, you know, studying carefully. And, you know, I had to do the same with Brazil. Um, you know, obviously fans are going to understand how it goes, but the average person is going to be confused by this point. But it does introduce a new scenario, which is that Broken Sword doesn't want the king dead. Uh, so there's this two-way fight and then another two-way fight, and Snow then falls and survives, as does Broken Sword. Uh, the it, basically the, the the fight with Nameless with with the uh, Quinn guards watching is staged a third time, and this time it becomes apparent that Snow falling is actually um, part of the plan. Part of the plan, and she's not actually dying as she has died the first two times. Mm. That pretty much brings us. It's it's kind of a slightly clearer version of the blue way of doing things. Mm. Well, again, like I said, the the idea of everything being white to me was the idea that this is all the colours brought together. Mm. And so this is kind of the the truest version of events that you get. Um, Snow at the battle with Nameless is upset, but Mm. not so upset that she's all over the place. Um, She's... um, It seems apparent that the... Uh, that Broken Sword not wanting the king dead is part of the reason why they haven't spoken to each other for three years. Um, although, again, that may have been exaggerated for the benefit of the king. Uh, yeah, the, the the battle between the two of them, Nameless kind of initially doesn't want to get involved and then he kind of breaks it up. Then Moon attacks him and then eventually they get brought to a standstill and Broken Sword says to Moon, you've got to stop fighting him. You can't possibly beat him. He's you know way out of your league. Okay, so the fact that Broken Sword does not want the king dead means that the plot now thickens. Broken Sword now reminisces, uh, and this is uh, in... Is this Now it's... I know it's in green. Is this basically broken... Like, if we take this as Broken Sword is now reminiscing in the same reality as the the white clear version. Yes. This is Broken Sword right now while Nameless is at uh, the king's chamber Mm. broken sword is thinking back to a long time ago when uh, he and snow had only just met and they were doing calligraphy and they're swathed in green which i interpreted as life creativity potential Mm -hmm. what did you think yeah no same thing youth um memory life love new things growth yeah this is basically this whole section should have a little title card that says three years ago yeah does it not? It doesn't. It really it, should. It, that That is when this is happening. And you can tell because Broken Sword does not have a beard, which he does in ah. the Three years ago. Time. So does that mean that she slept with Sky like apparently then and then he stopped for three years? I don't know if that ever happened. Yeah. Basically, in the red version of events, she's not talking to him because um, she slept with Sky. Mm. In the... Uh, in the green version of events and therefore in the white version An of events. An idealised version of the real events. Yeah, she's not speaking to him because of what happens in this section. Yeah. Uh, then we uh, cut back to, uh, you know, we're, we stay in the past and it's a uh, straight-up assault on this Forbidden City and these guys are going to town on the whole army. Now, we've mentioned before, nyah, 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 which is when... Um, like hero characters are fighting baddies uh, like lots and lots and lots of baddies 
And, you know, while they're fighting the ones in the foreground, there's no one else fighting. Because the ones in the background are just going, nyah, 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 while they're rushing in with spears say, and killing them. They can't them. attack the hero because if they did, this fight would be over in seconds. Yeah. I just mean, mobber. The, the idea is that at this point, like you know, if you tried to mob her, oh, she'd just spin her sleeves around and like that would happen. But in reality, when you're actually blocking extras, it doesn't look right. It looks like they're just going nyah, 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 get nyah, them nyah, off nyah, screen in the background. But like you can't get them off screen because you have to surround them. Have them fight each other? I don't. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, ching ching ching! This is a bad battle. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's it's actually it's epic looking, and it's another one of those like tall tale style like fable type things. You know, where where it's like all oh, these two assassins storm the castle to take out the king by hand, and um, uh, it's like you know twenty thousand troops each. And then um, when Broken Sword goes in to, to finish off the king on his own, uh, that leaves Snow outside dealing with 40,000, holding them all off on her own and going... And so all Broken Sword has to do at this point is seal the deal. And uh, so uh, he, he sees the king. They, they fight in the same chamber that Nameless is now uh, kneeling in, and uh, it is swathed in uh, beautiful green uh, sheets. And um, all of those get shot down during the fight as this particular era ends and the green disappears because uh, ultimately Broken Sword does not kill the king. He gets the point where he is... <laughs> he gets the point. So Broken Sword spares the life of the king and then when asked about it later, writes down in the sand for Nameless two words. Now in the original Chinese, it's three words and I remember this from the original subtitles of the Chinese DVD that I watched and almost no I do wish I'd kept so I could keep it in like a, a two disc set with the ones I've got I may in fact track it down just basically for a slightly more accurate version of that uh, script um, and this is the second week in a row by the way that we've had Miramax butcher something um, but this one was actually quite contentious and um, even Zhang Yumo doesn't know whether a hell of a lot has been lost in translation. In the two-word Miramax version, the reason that Broken Sword does not kill the king is our land. Meaning that the king will one day unify all of China and that that will actually be a good thing. Mm. Very specifically, um, Broken Sword wants the war to end. Yeah. And if the king is assassinated at this point, his fear is that the infighting between the seven kingdoms mm. will just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So like Game of Thrones then? Yes. He's right. Nuke it from orbit, only way to be sure. Yeah. Of the various potentates in Game of Thrones, I suppose uh, the king of kin is probably kind of a... He's on the Daenerys spectrum... He's got the equivalent to like the Like he's dragons. Daenerys way down the road when she she's less um, idealistic. Yeah, the point of whether Daenerys is the best leader for a united um, kingdoms is kind of irrelevant. She's the only one with the firepower to do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the, the King of Kin does not come off as a Joffrey. He does not come off as a Robert Baratheon. No. He does not come off as a Stannis. He does not come He's off. He's not really anybody. <laughs> the, the metaphor doesn't quite work. I was 
thinking of a scenario where literally seven kingdoms are always no, at no, war. No, 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 I know, sorry. No, it's actually I... quite a good one, when... thank you very much. You when know say... nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> when I say it doesn't work, what I mean is there is no direct parallel. We don't like Game of Thrones anyway. No anime or Game of Thrones. I like uh, bits of Game of Thrones. Now, in the original Chinese, the three-word version of that, all under heaven. Ooh. Now, the reason that this is different is that could actually apply to the whole world. It could. It could. Um, I was Remember, at this point, they still thought that the Earth was flat. I was reading, and I'm going to uh, cite at the end of this a couple of um, blogs that I would recommend anybody who wants to know even more about this movie um, go and read. Um, but the comments under one of them, uh, one chap left a rather lengthy diatribe is really the only term I can use um, about the fact that he considers this to be a Chinese propaganda film about the new world order and that basically it's all about how communism wants to take over the world and how that's actually a good thing and he he says uh, something along the lines of why don't you ask the people at Tiananmen Square what they think of the idea of a unified China I don't think that was the intent. No, but it kind of... The idea of unity taken to a ridiculous extreme, yes. But the point of this is that what Broken Sword is is kind of begging for at this stage is balance. Mm. But he's also telling the king that and trying to make it very clear that he sees this in the king. Rather than just going, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm not going to tell you why. You just work it out for yourself. Yeah, well, he's he's sort of doing this whole, you know, I'm going to let you live. Now do the right thing. Mm. Show me you're worthy of that. At this point, um, you know, he, point, he states that one person's suffering is uh, unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Uh, he, he effectively gives the old uh, need to the many speech. Mm. And the emperor, the king, the soon-to-be emperor, uh, sheds a tear at this stage because uh, in his shock, he realises that the one person who gets him, because his courtiers just think he's a tyrant, is one of his enemies. And he's he's never looked lonelier than at this stage in the film. He's never seemed more like a man sitting atop this enormous pyramid who can only remain where he is. He can never really join the rest of the ranks. And how that's actually not so fantastic. And um, that means that Nameless has one final decision. To carry out Broken Sword's ultimate ideal for a warrior. Now, this is... um, the king points to the uh, the thing that uh, Nameless asked Broken Sword to write for him, the 20th character for Sword. And uh, he states that it goes in three stages as he's looking at it, uh, which begin with the warrior holding the sword and ultimately end in the sword and warrior becoming one with the need for battle satisfied and only peace remaining. Effectively, the ultimate end for a warrior, the ultimate ideal, is to no longer be useful. 
or to to no certainly to no longer have the desire to fight. I kind of saw the progression as he outlines it as being the sword is without, then the sword is within, then the sword is completely absorbed and disappears. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, it's. Um, it, it, yes, there is no more need to fight, but it's that idea of the the better able you are to fight, the less you need to, mm. and that that's what sword training and the the whole point of doing the calligraphy is that the the um, the physical process of calligraphy in this is because everything's done so big. Um, it's very similar to the process of sword fighting. It's all in your arm and your wrist, and it's it's all about flow and movements being both precise and also inspired. Um, and the, the training for the two kind of go hand in hand. Um, and I, I do kind of... Right, this is going to sound a bit ass-kissy, so feel free to cut it out if you want to. But the okay. idea that, um, that a... Uh, the pen is mightier than the sword thing. The idea that a writer and a warrior are actually kind of two parts of the same coin. Mm-hmm. I see that in you a lot. <laughs> I'll leave that in. <laughs> Thank you. Um, oh, s- side note, by the way. In terms of Miramax screwing things up, because last week they had they royally buggered up the uh, Princess and the Cobbler. Sorry. The Thief in the Cobbler, sorry, once, sorry, the amazing Nasrudin. Um, look at the cover here for Hero. Now, I pointed to this before. The front, the poster for Hero, uh, originally in China, has got Jet Li at the front, then there's, he's flanked by Tony Lung and Maggie Chung, the major dramatic actors on either side. Uh, and then there's um, this, you know, new breakout stars, Zhang Ziyi, um, you know, just slightly to the right again, looking gorgeous and fantastic but she's like she's a support role in the film and so she's slightly further back and then at the back there you got Donnie Yen going and also you know featuring an appearance from Donnie Yen and then you've got you know this the amazing sort of the army behind them and I don't know if the uh, emperor uh, the king is on the front cover as well here uh... no the king is not there see what they've done though look at that poster yeah they've just yeah. cut them off yeah yeah no, the original, this was the uh, front cover of the DVD that I had. It's got Jet Li on the front holding his uh, Chinese sword sideways. And then uh, hovering above them like a ghost is the King of Kin. However, the Miramax poster, uh, they're all sort of brandishing swords. And it's uh, the, the people that I've already said. Um, in fact, is that Broken Sword there? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's Tony, Tony Long. Yeah. That's Donnie Yen. That's Maggie Chung. That's Zhang Ji, and yeah. that's Jelly. And um, for the Blu-ray box that we've got, they trimmed away Donnie Yen and um, Tony uh, Tony Lung and Maggie Chung. So you've just got Jet Li and Zhang Ji. So you've got the star of the film and a support role. And he's sort of holding her to him like they're two warriors together. Mm-hmm. Or they might even be entangled romantically. Also... That's bollocks right there. Look at that tagline. One man will challenge an empire. That's a distortion of the truth. It's absolute crapola, is what that it is. That is not what happens. But here's the best thing that most people won't even notice. Look at the front cover. Look at the poster for the Chinese version. Mm. He's holding that gorgeous Chinese sword that he used, the, the bendy one that he uses throughout the film. Look at that. That's not his sword. That's not his sword. That 
is a Japanese katana. Ooh. That is cultural insensitivity, folks. That's just some twat with Photoshop in 2004. I was just about to say, it's also very bad Photoshop. Yeah. They've had to, for the Blu-ray, they've had to sort of black, like darken everything up because they've twisted his hand sideways. Like, they've, they've flipped it. Oh, they have as well. It's such, such bollocks. They flipped the sword, but not his hand. That looks really awkward. Yep. Yep, it does. Anyway, so that's Miramax for you. So Nameless now has his uh, decision to make, and he decides that he's got his moment, and he leaps up and performs death at ten paces, jumps over the candles, slams into the uh, uh, waiting king's back, who has turned his back on him, uh, you know, saying, do as you will, and um, taps him in the back with the handle of the sword rather than running him through to say, I have decided not to kill you, thus going with broken swords uh, all under heaven or our land philosophy. And then begins a very lengthy end section of the, the film. Because basically after he's uh, uh, you know, attempted to assassinate the king, he's a dead man. So he turns around and walks out to the uh, uh, front gate. And that takes about 20 more minutes of the film because it's interspersed with a lot of uh, Broken Sword and Snow talking. Um, now, I would assume, actually, if you were going to walk very slowly from one end to the other, it would take about 20 minutes. Mm. But basically, the entire army gather around. They're like, we've got to kill this guy. He tried to assassinate you, king. Come on, tell us we can kill him. And the king is torn because he greatly respects this warrior and the warriors that he um, is effectively an emissary of. And the um, all of these guards sort of crowding around and shouting reminds me of um, one of the few Kurosawa films I've actually seen all the way through to the end. Kurosawa is hard to watch now for a, you know an, an adult human in 2017. <laughs> like um, we we when the Magnificent Seven came out, we bought Seven Samurai and we started watching it. It's like oh god. <sighs> That was the third time I've attempted to watch Seven Samurai, and um, we stalled. We went, no, we'll come back to it later after we've seen um, the original, the, the remake, Magnificent Seven, and then the remake of The Magnificent Seven. And we've now done that. We really need to go back. Um, but yeah, Kurosawa's hard to watch. But this film actually reminded me of his version of King Lear, which is Ran. And let me tell you, folks, when you're 10 years old, three hours of watching Kurosawa is a long Sunday afternoon. Dad. King Leo would be a long Sunday afternoon for a 10-year-old, frankly. Yeah, but there's, you know, there's various warring samurai armies with different uh, coloured plumage. Beautiful plumage, the samurai. Um, Painting for the fjords! Um, just that, that that the amount of like you know manpower that Kurosawa stuck on screen and all these galloping horses and just charging men that it feels like uh, Zhang Yumo was like right I'm going to kind of evoke that a little bit here I could be wrong but that's what it reminded me of Broken Sword and Snow fight over Nameless's ultimate decision a rider comes to them waving the yellow flag which you said equates to uh, it, things are not as it seems when you're looking at yellow. Um, basically, Snow had asked her servant that after Nameless has made his attempt to ride out with either a red, red flag, flag if he's succeeded, if he's in succeeded the king. or a yellow flag if he has failed, mm. 
this is the reason why at this point yellow means things are not as they seem. The servant means he has failed to kill the king, but he hasn't failed. No. Well, he's failed in terms of uh, what, as far as Snow's concerned, they had one job. Yeah, but that's what I mean about her being you this had very one job. Her members. being this very single-minded person, she sees these mm. things in a very cut and dried way. You didn't kill the king, therefore you failed. Yeah, but in uh, uh, Broken Sword's eyes, he succeeded. So they duel, and she's enraged. And uh, as she rushes at him, he drops his sword, smiling, and she runs him through and uh, mortally wounds him. And this is his ultimate dedication to this cause. He will literally die to prove to her how committed he is to this premise. Mm. And how committed he is to her as well. Part of the the green story that he tells um, is that their, their aim is to get back to a place where there are no swords, where there are no swordsmen, no warriors, that they can just be a man and a woman and they can mm. be together and they don't have to fight anymore. And basically what he's saying by lowering his sword is that that ideal and that... Um, that destination is more important to him than to continue to defend himself against her. Because he has been, up to this point, he's been parrying her blows and, and mm. kind of, you know, keeping her off him. But but at this stage, he just stops and she doesn't pull it. She mm. thinks right up until... But this is the thing. She is not intending to land this blow. She is fully expecting that he will defend, continue to defend himself. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this it's when it occurred to me that this is civil war as in the um, uh, the Marvel version it's uh, personal liberties and personal freedoms versus overall security safety and to you know the extent that they're pr- pushing it here a sense of unity at the expense of the individual and to demonstrate the value of that unity individuals mm. are going to have to lay down their lives now, I could see why people would interpret this as Chinese or communist propaganda, but there's so much complexity going on that it's not just a straightforward uh, film that's, that's pitching this as, oh, it's going to be so great. It's such a bittersweet ending. It really is, because ultimately, although um, the the unification continues, it's not uh, it's not pure, it's not idealistic, it's not, um, you know, it, it is very double-edged. Hmm. In a final act, uh, Snow arranges um, Broken Sword in front of her and runs them both through with her sword um, so that they can be together in a place without swords. And this is the first time I noticed, oh, they have become one with the sword. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, she ultimately could not live in a world uh, without him, and uh her heart is broken by the the events that are going on around them and it's ultimately the decision that feels the most right to her at that stage Mm. and uh, Nameless finally gets to the end of the courtyard and the uh, um, army and uh, courtiers shout at the uh, king to declare um, that he, he is to be executed for his crime attempted assassination and eventually he does give the death order and they fire that comedically huge amount of arrows up into the air and they sail gracefully down towards Nameless in this sort of beautiful, very memorable shot. Um, and when the dust has cleared and uh, you know you see all these arrows embedded in the wall behind him in the door, there is the outline of a human, which uh, obviously, you know, because he's filled with all of the arrows that would have gone in this uh, space, um, 
and I interpret that as the shape of humanity amid endless conflicts, which is ultimately what all three of these, all four of these, all five if you can include Moon as well, of these assassins, and, in, and indeed the king himself. Um, all of the major named characters showing their humanity throughout this uh, film about how a endless war was ended. Mm. Yeah. And it also, that um, that image is a mirror of the calligraphy master who sat there and mm. wrote out history while arrows embedded themselves in the wall behind him. Yeah. And then it fades out and uh, uh, fades up to the Great Wall of China, which uh, the uh, King of Qin eventually built to protect all of China. And I really wish that Zhang Yumo had not then gone on to direct the Great Wall. Oh, he never. He did. Oh my God. I told you at the beginning. I because missed that. Because it says, you know, building the Great Wall to protect his people from monsters is the next thing you then need to say. That, I mean, it feels a bit disrespectful. A little bit. The film is so daft and stupid and, and, and generic. Mm. Okay. It's so empty. There are some neat bits in it, in, in that um, the, 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 the main captain of the guard is female, and she and Matt Damon never engage in anything romantic at all. They just mutually respect each other, and she's a total badass, and he's just sort of running along to try and keep up. Mm. Rather says something about the state of Hollywood cinema that that's noteworthy, though, isn't it? Yes. Um, and there are some, some visually arresting things, but nothing about the film makes any kind of sense, and it's boring. My God, is it boring. Mm. It's such a far cry from this film. And um, I'm, like I say, uh, any other director, because, you know, then it wouldn't be directly tied to this final shot of Hero. It's like, and they built the Great Wall as a symbol of Chinese defense against alien monster things, probably. We never get told why or how. Ay, 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 ay. Speaking of the Great Wall, I covered that in Movie A Day. Hey, listeners of School of Movies, I have a new book out now, and it's not New Century. It's a compilation of my first three months of writing about one movie every day in one easy-to-navigate bundle. Some of you guys may have been reading these every day, and now is your chance to own what I've done so far. That's a hundred little critical think pieces about a whole bunch of films, ranging from the truly brilliant to the utterly sodding awful. And a great proportion of these are going to be films we're never going to be covering in the podcasts, but have been extremely fun to write about as I watch them. So if you want to know what I think of B-Movie, The Howling, Jaws 3D, Jack Reacher, Moonwalker, Turbo Kid, The Big Short, Hunt for the Wilder People, True Grit, Drag Me to Hell, Golden Ninja Warrior, The Money Pit, Sicario, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and of course, Swamp Shark, then head on over to Amazon and pick up Movie A Day Volume 1 by Alexander Shaw for a very reasonable price. And I'll be doing three more volumes between now and 2018, and you can keep up with them daily. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at School of Movies. But yeah, the uh, uh, nameless was uh, uh, killed as a um, was executed as a, a criminal, but then buried as a hero. And uh, is this actually based on a genuine 2,000 year old Chinese legend? 
I don't I know, know Mulan was. I couldn't tell you. But yeah, he does get, uh, the, the emperor gives him, sorry, the king. But then, no, he does go on to become the emperor. So, mm. um, But he gives him a, a, a state funeral where he is given every honour because of the wisdom that he brought to him. Yeah, the film is based on the story of Jin Kei's assassination attempt on the King of Kin in 227 years before Christ. Wow, that's a long time ago. Jin Kei was a guest residing in the estate of Dan, Crown Prince of Yan, and renowned for his failed assassination attempt on uh, Ying Zheng, King of the Kin State, who later became China's first emperor. Uh, his story is told in a chapter entitled Biographies of the Assassins. Dude, the Bible doesn't have any biographies of the assassins, and it really should. But it doesn't need it. Let's just go read Sima Qian's Records of the Grand Historian, which sounds <laughs> far more entertaining, frankly. In 230 BC, the Qin state began conquering other states as part of its unification plan. Qin's army successfully annihilated the weakest of the seven warring states, Han. Two years later, Zhao was also conquered. In exchange for peace, King Xi of Yan had earlier forced his son, Crown Prince Dan of Yan, to be... I am Crown Prince Dan of Yan, to be held hostage by the Kin, but Prince Dan returned, knowing that Kin was far stronger than Yan and would attack it sooner or later. Jin Kei originally came from the state of Wei. Concealing a dagger inside the map scroll, Jin Kei and Kin Wu Yang representing the Yan and met with the king. Kin Wu Yang reportedly became so nervous that he acted almost paralyzed when entering the presence of the king. Jin Kei explained that his partner had never set eyes upon the son of heaven. Other sources suggest Jin Kei described Kin Wu Yang as a rural boy from the countryside who had never seen the world. When the king opened the map, Jin Kei immediately seized the revealed dagger and attacked the king, who managed to back away from his initial thrust, tearing off a sleeve in the process. While the king fled from his attacker on foot, this is less awesome to watch, by the way, he attempted to draw his own sword, from his belt but was unable to do so quickly as it was a ceremonial sword that this is so much more real life isn't it like oh, I can't pull the sword out <laughs> deliberately been made very uh, very long like, so it's like a Sephiroth sword mm. a Masamune but Chinese none of the other kin officials within the vicinity were armed and able to stop Jin Kei and the guards stationed outside the palace were unable to reach the scene in time so the guards were inept as well mm-hmm in the confusion, Jin Kei began to close in on the king and struggled, uh, who struggled to get away from the assassination by circling behind a pillar. So now they're running round and round like Scooby-Doo. I was about to say, this is very Monty Python. It's like French farce. <laughs> Seeing the king in grave danger, a royal physician <coughs> named Sha Wahu grabbed his medicine bag and threw it towards Jin Kei. They slowed the assassin just enough to allow the king to recover some distance. Reminded by cries... Uh, from other officials, the king managed to shift his sword back behind his back and unsheath it over his shoulder. He immediately struck Jin Kei on the thigh, effectively immobilizing Jin Kei, out of desperate last attempts, threw his dagger towards the king, only to miss the target. I would imagine he baseballed it. The king then proceeded to stab Jin Kei eight more times, mortally wounding him. At this point, the guards arrived to finish him off both Jin Kei and the fleeing Qin Wu Yang. After Jin Kei's attempt, the Qin army general Ryang Zhan was sent against the Yan state. Prince Dan sent his army to fight at Ji, but was soon defeated in an attempt to appease the King of Qin. King Shi of Yan put his son to death. However, the Yan were annexed, nonetheless, and Yan were destroyed. So, in other words, this Chinese film hero is loosely based on Jin Kei's assassination attempt with Jet Li playing the assassin. And when we say loose, we mean hot dog down a hallway. Okay, uh, a fictionalised version of Jin Kei appears in the film Highlander Endgame, oh, son of played a by Donnie, Donnie Yen. Yen. In the film, Jin Kei is the other... He must have thought, well, this is a funny state of affairs when he was fighting the real Jin Kei. 
an immortal warrior living in the story's present day. The film alters the spelling of Jinke's name to Jinke and makes reference to his historical association with oh, Kishi Huang. So basically, this film is based on a true story in that there was a failed assassination attempt, but the real-life story, as is always the case... Is a little bit crap. Is a little bit crap. <laughs> Except for in those few cases where the real-life version is much more interesting. As is almost always, I will say, caveat. Um, but yeah, that's that's Hero, folks. We hoped you liked that, Pascal. And if you want to hear us do more epic Chinese martial arts extravaganzas, you know where to go, folks. Um, this has gone up in my estimation. I, we didn't have it on Blu-ray before, but I bought it on Blu-ray to, uh, to, to study for this, and I'm glad I did. Mm, this good will Lord, be... it looks amazing. Oh, it does. This will go in our trilogy, and uh, Pascal, please do treat yourself and buy this, because if you love this film this much, you need to have the Blu-ray as well. Oh, yes. Okay. We shall be back next week with, let's see what's on the slate. Oh, I need to quote the blogs that people should look at. Okay. So anybody who, having listened to all of that, would like to know um, a little bit more about the film, um, particularly the, the colour ideas in a little bit more depth, um, it's worth noting, by the way, that, that one of these blogs refers to an interview uh, with IndieWire.com um, where they spoke to Zhang Yimou and asked him whether the colours represented anything specific and he says not he says it was literally just to mark out this is this bit of the story this is that bit of the story it's possible I hate that. that there was some subconscious overlaying Probably going not. on there but it doesn't matter ultimately this is the man who made Curse of the Golden Flower a lot of this stuff happens by accident mm, he had a great team working with him yeah but it, ultimately it is it's what you get out of it you can interpret way more in a film or a story than the creator ever intended and that is a good thing once art is out there it should be taken and multiplied and nobody should ever say that this way of looking at something is wrong because that's not what the author I reckon did. he said to his set dressers we need these sections to have different colours what do you suggest and the set dressers were like red colour of passion and he, he was just like yep red go for red for that one and like he wasn't paying attention to why they were saying it but that they had really good set designers or costumers or possibly somebody should ask Chris Doyle what his ideas were about yeah. the colour that was the cinematographer wasn't it yeah. the, the DP um, but I mean you know Zhang Yimou did a couple of other very red films <laughs> uh, so I think Raise the Red Lantern I assume was very red yeah um, and Red Sorghum yep uh, is the other it does one. like but, red. Um, but yeah, so if you want to know a bit more about these, uh, go for um, The Case for Global Film, which is uh, a website that looks at all sorts of um, uh, non-Hollywood movies as a way to then kind of reflect what, uh, what Hollywood movies do. Um, it's really good. This particular article was from 2008, but they do have some very recent ones um, that are worth looking at. That's uh, itpworld.wordpress.com. Um, and the other uh, article that I read in preparation for this was a review by Rebecca H on SPCNet, um, which is, is just a straight review of the movie, but it does go into a lot of depth and is definitely worth a read. So check those two out. And we'll be back next week with another conflict and combat heavy film from a visionary director named Edgar Wright. It's Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We will see you for that. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.